You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Wednesday, the 30th of November. It's cool and grey, but dry here in TW11 today. A day when we learned that Willie Mullins won't have any runners in the King George VI chase at Kempton over Christmas, having taken out last year's winner, Tornado Flyer, and the exciting Galapande. Sure, one man who definitely will have more than one, maybe more than two, is multiple champion trainer Paul Nichols, who's engaged in something of a war of words, though I'd say something of a phony war, with Gordon Elliott. Was that lost in translation? We'll discuss that a little bit later on. It was a day when we found out, not to our surprise, that a number of senior figures in local politics in the horse racing headquarters of Newmarket want to get rid of their MP, who's been in the jungle for the last few weeks. We learned that Ascot will be putting up their prize money next year to record levels. Their Nick Smith is along in a few moments' time. Also, that trainer Harry Fry isn't going to let Nicky Henderson have it all his own way with John Bon in the Henry VIII novices chase at Sandown Park at the weekend. Nobody expects Honeysuckle to be defeated on her return to action in the Hatton's Grace Hurdle at Fairy House on Sunday. And nobody's really that surprised that mares of real quality on the flat were making serious money at the Scepter Sessions at Tattersall's yesterday. Though the price tag of alcohol-free, 5.4 million guineas, 5.67 million pounds sterling, might have arched a few eyebrows. The man who bought the horse on behalf of Chinese interest, Mick Donny, who said he might have gone even higher. But as I welcome in Cornelius Lysett, renowned broadcaster of the show, Cornelius, it's not how much she made, but where she's going and what she's going to do that perhaps surprised a few. Well, yeah, worth saying that she's the second most expensive thoroughbred uh, sold at public auction after after Marsha, six million guineas for Marsha, and it sounds. Uh, listening to Michael Donohoe, who is representing uh, the new owners, and she's going to race on in Australia, um, alcohol-free. Uh, it sounds from um, uh, the, some of the quotes afterwards as though they'd have they'd have gone a little bit further than they did, but uh, they were happy to sign at uh, 5.4 million guineas. Yu Sheng Zhang, the Chinese billionaire, uh, started off as a taxi driver, has become a massive. Uh, figure in in Chinese business and uh, in world racing as well, bigger and bigger in world racing. Uh, that uh, is the the name behind Alcohol Free, uh, and uh, yeah, she's going to race on. So uh, that that's quite striking, isn't it? I, I suppose um, that was that was always a possibility, especially with the potential prizes uh, in uh, other parts of the world. But I suppose there are others who thought she might uh, just go off to be a broodmate. That's clearly the long-term plan, and they're talking about sending her to Frankel at some stage. But she will be racing in Australia, uh, 87 races in Australia, says Michael Donohoe uh, of BBA Ireland, buying uh, alcohol-free, 87 races in Australia, worth a million plus. So clearly, uh, there are some big targets for this wonderful, versatile filly, uh, to be aimed at. Uh, and uh, it does also bring into sharp focus the difference in prize money around the world. I think we're going to be talking uh, about Ascot, Royal Ascot and Ascot Racecourse 
bit later on. We know their prize money figures for 2023. But when you suddenly hear 87 races across Australia worth a million plus, uh, that is something that uh, certainly focuses the mind. And alcohol-free, uh, bought by Jeff Smith and Littleton Stard, 40 million, uh, 40,000, not million, 40,000 euro, uh, ends up being sold by, for 5.4 million guineas. Uh, having won the Fred Darling, that unforgettable day in the rain at uh, Royal Ascot Coronation Stakes, another unforgettable day uh, at Goodwood, the Sussex Stakes, uh, the July Cup as well. So versatility in terms of distance. I've missed out the Chibley Park um, uh, Stakes as well. Uh, versatility in terms of distance, versatility in terms of ground as well. Uh, a fabulous horse trained by uh, Andrew Balding and the team at Kingsclear to follow on for Jeff Smith, follow on Chief Singer and Lock Song and Arabian Queen and Persian Punch. Big names like that. And, and the other thing I love about this horse, Nick, um, she's by No Nay Never. Mum was plying and they called her alcohol free. So on top of everything else, brilliantly well named as well. Yeah, the owner already has the damn plying as well, and she's uh, in in full to his own stallion. And this fully alcohol free is going to end up being covered by uh, uh, Frankel, either on a northern mm -hmm. or southern hemisphere covering. There's a, there's a motif from yesterday's big names, uh, Cornelius. Not only are many of them headed abroad, alcohol free to Australia. A Saudi interests bought Saffron Beach for three point six million, and the Platinum Queen, the Group One winning two year old, will head to Japan but they will all race on for big money. And if ever there was an indication of the incentives of big prize money for elite races, it was shown to us in, in pretty stark detail last night. Happily, Jimmy George saying to us yesterday, a lot of the big names on the first day, they're staying in Britain and Ireland to be breeding prospects. But the real cream going abroad, but not just to breed, but to race as well. And and it, it really does show us what we've got to what we've got to try and aspire to. Yeah, a, a very striking uh, set of uh, intended facts there. So for all the the delight of these horses being sold for for big big money in Britain at Newmarket at the uh, Scepter Sessions in uh, at Tattersalls in in Newmarket, the fact is that in the cold light of day, uh, the analysis is that a lot of these, and those are some big and popular uh, names and some really striking abilities as well, going off uh, around the world because the, the prize money in the UK is is not what it is elsewhere. So it, it, it internationalizes racing, doesn't it? Because uh, clearly there will be extra interest in those races taking place in uh, other parts of the world because uh, these are, are, are popular uh, figures which are, are going elsewhere. But, you know, it is in the cold light of day, British racing is not thriving in the way that it would love to be. And um, that is something that has to be addressed. And, uh, you know, prize money is at the, at the root of so many of these discussions. Well, with that in mind, let's check in with the Director of Racing and Public Affairs at Ascot Racecourse, Nick Smith. Ascot have uh, reached the £17 million prize money mark for the first time, a significant increase on 2022. Nick, how is this possible? How were you able to do this in the current climate? Well, really, it's a question of business priorities. I mean, we want to make 
uh, price money increases wherever we can, wherever it's prudently possible. And we've just taken a decision with the situation with prize money at the moment in this country, the fact that so many horses are being campaigned overseas or sold overseas. We need to make a statement on behalf of the top end. Um, and that statement is very much that we, we want to make sure that the uh, those who have horses who are good enough to run at the uh, showpiece, the shop window end of the sport, have something to aim at. But that 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 money has got to got to come from somewhere. So so where are the where are the wins for Ascot? Where have the wins been over the last twelve months to to sort of enable you to be at least reasonably robust and not take wild risks? Well, it, it wouldn't be a wild risk per se. I mean, the increase is significant, obviously, but it's a um, it's an eight point five percent increase in total prize fund on twenty twenty two figures. So, it's a it's a progressive increase rather than something that you could call a, a risk per se. Um, I think we're we're through the COVID period. Um, that was a damaging period, but by no means critical for businesses like ours. We're through that. We we made prize money increases in twenty twenty two significant prize money increase in 2022 and this is an extension of that um as a, a private organization we don't have shareholders we can take a view about the long term of the sport and we can therefore prioritize to a degree and amongst other expenses of course such as capex and improvements to the site we can imp- improve uh, the, the prize money picture and take a decision effectively not to chase uh, record profits for example so what we're doing here against the backdrop of reduced levy is deciding to make a stand and to, and to take forward the prize money picture at Ascot because we want more nature strips. We want more Japan Japanese horses traveling over here, Hong Kong horses. All these kind of horses add so much to the brand. It's all part of the, the circular income strategy. They drive media rights, they drive betting, they drive profile, that in terms drives licensing and sponsorship opportunities. So we're taking a long-term view here. Um, rather than a short-term view. And the long-term view is to make sure that the very highest level of the sport, the shop window, is, is standing up internationally. Of course, it's not just about Royal Ascot. I mean, we are making increases across the, the whole uh, piece, if you like, uh, including a couple of high-value maidens, a 50,000 maiden in May, the Crocodile Teal, and a 45,000-pound maiden in uh, September, this is very much in the in the sweet spot of 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 what's come out of things like the Peter Savile report uh, and what's coming out of the BHA strategy, uh, whereby the developmental races are a very important stepping stone to protecting uh, and retaining, if you like, uh, the stars of the future. And to what extent are you informed by what's happening overseas as well? I mean, we heard a. A uh, press release uh, last week from from Ozhorse about how many million dollar races there will be run in Australia, for example, relative to the rest of the world. And we saw the the turnover on the Japan Cup last week, absolutely stunning. To what to what extent does that inform the way that you you strategize your your season and your distribution of prize money? Well, it informs it, but of course, it can't have a material effect because. Australia and Japan are are not just different countries, they're different planets uh, in terms of their funding mechanism and what they're able to do. I mean, what we are trying to do, of course, is, is lead the way and be at the top of opportunities in Europe. And of course, there are other benefits of going to race in, in the UK, which still hold fast, like uh, making a stallion here, uh, the fact that we are able 
um, with our brand of racing to produce something that people from overseas really want uh, to be part of. And if you look at, obviously, the sales figures from the book one, even the book two sales, even the mayor sale, if you look at the, the value of our bloodstock and the, and the brand of British racing, there's still a very much a pull for people to want to, uh, to, to, to compete here. But that has to, in the long term, uh, go, go hand in hand with prize money increases. So whilst we can't get close to competing with the, with the Middle East, with Asia and what have you, we can at least in the context of Europe try and stay strong uh, and try and stay ahead of that game. That was Nick Smith from from Ascot there. And I think Cornelius, yeah, albeit Ascot are in a fortuitous position, they are a, a, a well-renowned international race course with a huge reputation and deeper finances and deeper pockets than, than most in, in the UK, if not all in the UK. It's still a laudable ambition to try and get your elite racing up to a globally competitive level. Yeah, but I think it's a it's a necessity, isn't it? Because we've seen these wonderful horses coming from uh, around the world, from Australia, from the United States, from from elsewhere as well, to to Royal Ascot in particular uh, in recent years. But uh, as was said in a in a media release yesterday, the the compa- competition to welcome the best horses is so intense the best horses from around the world is is so intense and you know that 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 this is part of their I don't want to be indelicate about this but part of their post queen strategy as well isn't it because it's all very well saying there's all this prestige all this pomp and circumstance associated with royal ascot since goodness knows when and uh, clearly a lot of these horses came to britain because to to royal ascot in particular because there was a chance that her her late Majesty was um, going to uh, to to come and you know do you remember when Black Caviar came? I think she was sort of introduced, wasn't she, uh, to Black Caviar? Or Black Caviar, I should say, probably was introduced to the Queen. So, so the fact is that that prestige thing they can't just trade on that forever. The Queen was one of the best known horsey people in the world. Uh, people love to come from all corners of the globe to Ascot in particular because of the chance of, of rubbing shoulders with Her, her Majesty. And uh, that can't happen anymore, as we very sadly know. And uh, th- this is you know, one of the things they've got to do, is to make that, those prizes as attractive as they can to try and continue to get those horses from all around the globe to descend on Royal Berkshire in the middle of June. We know that there's nothing more than the British racegoer loves than than a festival, and that's why by Royal Ascot and York and Goodwood are uh, continuing to thrive. We know the effect of the Cheltenham Festival and an entry on the on the jump season, the whole and their attendances holding up when when others didn't. Of course, there's always the debate about whether the Cheltenham Festival is too important for Irish and British connections, and that's been rather ha- had a light shone on it over the last couple of days. Gordon Elliott was was asked about the relative competitiveness between Irish and British racing, and he said there's an opportunity in in Britain for for trainers to duck and dive to avoid each other with their with their big horses. And Paul Nichols has rather reared up and said that he doesn't do any ducking and diving, and um, was quoted as saying that he thought a lot of what was said was bullshit. Now, I I suspect there might be a, something lost in translation here, Cornelius, and that that Gordon Elliott, rather than being personal about the trainers involved, was rather just pointing out a shortcoming in the in the British system, which just affords people too many opportunities to run in, in lots of different races, where if the programme was streamlined, they'd have to do what they do in Ireland, which is run against each other. And that 
And, Seems a fairly and, innocuous point, as far as I can see. And he, Gordon's many things, but for being mischievous and stirring the pot is not necessarily uh, one of them, is, is it? So I, I suspect you may well be right, but... There are plenty of people, you know, it's ended up on the front page of the of the Racing Post newspaper. Nichols hits back at Elliot over the duck and dive claims, etc. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose, you know, we, we have looked at the numbers uh, in terms of Irish success at particularly the Cheltenham Festival, but, but uh, across the board, but particularly at the Cheltenham Festival in recent years. And people have sort of scratched their heads and worked out how to do it. And some people have said it's cyclical and other people have said, why are there so many British-based owners who have horses in Ireland? There are all sorts of, of theories. But uh, one, of the, one of the things that people certainly believe is that if there are more uh, uh, instances where the big names do clash to really get battle-hardened, then they can um, they can uh, they can do better in the future, and that is what's being highlighted here. There are uh, opportunities so that you know Nichols doesn't necessarily have to take on Henderson, Henderson doesn't necessarily have to take on Dan Skelton, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas in Ireland, you know, you just look at Fairy House on 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 Sunday, uh, and Mullins and Elliot and De Bromhead are, are clashing left, right, and centre. So. You know, it, it ends up as a as a spat uh, on the front page of the trade newspaper, but you know it is serious, isn't it? That that the fact is that although the numbers at Cheltenham in March of 2022 were not as skewed towards the Irish as they were the previous year, they were still pretty striking. I think did were there any were there any British um, winners on the final day of the festival? And there are lots of theories why this should be the case. One of those is unquestionably that there are too many opportunities uh, for the for the big for the big names to avoid themselves. And in Ireland, that's not the case. And you know, Elliot's highlighted this, and and Nichols has done a typical Nichols has 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 reacted. Though equally, um, the the racing media. Yeah perhaps didn't have all that much else to, to really go with and they grabbed it with both hands are you suggesting it was a quiet news day not a bit of it um well, the sales didn't come to the evening did they and uh, uh and uh, the entries for for fairy house etc uh and also the confirmation stage for the king george were interesting if not absolutely riveting so maybe that was just a nice alternative possibility well, the one thing we know... And I've done that, it myself, so yeah, it would exactly. be ludicrous to We've, start pointing fingers, and you and I have both done similar type of things. So I'm certainly not pointing fingers or criticising the media or anything like that. But there are some days that are a tiny bit busier than others, and there are some, some quotes which, uh, which grab you by the throat more than others. Yep, we've seen the whole and we've walked straight into it. Uh, and uh, there's no one who's ever going to accuse Paul Nichols of not running his good horses against each other because that's something he does on a pretty regular basis. And he will do again in the King George when Hitman and Brave Man's Game and Frodon take each other on, you suspect. Uh, the interesting bit out of the King George was that Willie Mullins won't have any runners. It's a race he's always been fond of, but he's taken out last year's winner, Tornado Flyer, and significantly, Galapin des Champs. Uh, Nichols, of course, is going to have to try and find a really good one if he's going to get the better of John Bond in the two-mile novice chase division after what John Bond did on his debut at Warwick. And it looks as though Mon Morale won't run in the Henry VIII novices chase at the weekend. That's a grade one at Sandown Park. The principal opponent to John Bond is likely to be Boot Hill, who's trained by Harry Fry, who's got a whole slew of interesting chances at the weekend. On Boot Hill, I asked him, although he was a horse of high reputation, whether after his Ascot win last time, he'd finally found the key to him. Well, I hope so. Um, and this season, yeah, I mean, we've 
his last two runs over fences we've been delighted with and obviously that valuable prize he won at Ascot it was it was great to, to see him sort of really begin to fulfil that potential that we've always felt he's had or hoped he's had and so um, obviously Saturday would be another big step up um, but uh, we, we go there with actually more more experience than than the others and, and particularly obviously John Bond uh, has only had the one start and they're all novices at the end of the day and Sandown's a, a good good test for any horse so um, yeah I think with drying conditions it's we, we weren't originally going to go for the race but I just think the way it's panned out um, we've yeah, we're going to look forward to taking our chance for sure. Love Envoy, your your Cheltenham Festival winning mare is is set to run in the in the big handicap hurdle. Uh, what was the thinking behind debuting in, in this race? Because it, I mean, I don't suppose it was was the obvious one. No, not particularly. I mean, and and sort of making a handicap debut against the boys necessarily isn't an obvious sort of choice. But we know she goes. She's won at Sandown. Um, we've really been sort of for our hand forced with with the ground conditions to be honest um i mean there, there aren't that well there aren't many options for her in, in level weights races against uh mares this side of christmas the program but the, the, the races pick themselves are uh, from new year um and and with the race at sandown on tollworth hurdle day there's a uh, so we just found that this sort of fitted in nicely with the program. It's about getting her season started on, on ground conditions that suit. And um, it'd be interesting, yes, to see her in a handicap and, and taking on the boys. But um, the alternative was to go to Cheltenham next weekend for Mayor's handicap over two and a half. But I just think we'd rather go now if we've got ground conditions to suit. So she's all, all set to, to get her campaign underway. What's her ultimate target, do you think? Well, all, all being well, um, we're hoping that she'll uh, warrant uh, a place in the Mayor's Hurdle at the festival. Um, so we've sort of been working backwards from that really all along. Um, and as I said, she can go to into Mayor, Mayor's Listed Hurdle at Sandown in January. There's another similar race at Warwick, middle of February, which so the, those races lead nicely into Cheltenham. So that's where we're hoping um, we'll be ending up with her. The other horse I wanted to talk about was was Revels Hill, whose unexposed seven year old is is in the the big London National. Was a good second to a highly regarded horse of Ben Pauling's at Ascot last time. Your darling, looks like you've got you've got him right where you want him, and the market hasn't missed him either. Yeah, it's uh, we were delighted with his comeback run over two five at Ascot. So. He'd won over three and a half miles uh, the last time we, we we saw him at the end of last season, uh, winning well. So, yeah, we're looking forward to stepping him up in trip again this Saturday. And he's, he's, that, that Ascot race has put him spot on for this weekend. So, hopefully, um, yeah, he, he can justify his position in the market. I mean, it is quite a short price, nine to four for a race like that. But he's a horse with, with great credentials. Just looking further down the track... Uh, you'll have watched the Coral Gold Cup with great interest because uh, you, you have a horse called Ask Me Early who was third to Lamilos at, at Bangor and actually, in the circumstances, ran a pretty good race. He's only a 10 shot or thereabouts for the for the Welsh Grand National. Is that a, a realistic reflection of, of, of his chance in a race like that? I think it's probably short, short enough in such a competitive race, but, um, I mean, we've always felt 
the Welsh national is, is sort of tailor-made for him. Unfortunately, he was favourite last 12 months ago and, and he had a horrible fall at home and we missed the race. So, um, yeah, I mean, we were delighted with Banger, his runner Banger, obviously, as he said, um, the winner winning well at Newbury um, last weekend. It's it's sort of all sort of things are sort of falling into place again nicely. So just we're not after last year, not counting counting chickens just yet. We just get him there first and foremost, and um, uh, hopefully if we do that, then he's he's also we feel would have a, have a a really strong chance in a race of that nature. All right, that was Harry Fry. Looking forward to the weekend. Uh, a little or big midweek gamble took place yesterday, Cornelius at Air Racecourse. Um, this was quite something. Just just tell us what happened. Yeah, this was a horse called Liz Lauren, uh, trained by a guy who's a farrier called Russell Ross, based in the northeast of England, has had some success in point-to-point races, and was ridden by his nephew, the jockey Ross Chapman. So we had a lot of Rosses here, uh, Russell Ross and Ross Chapman. Uh, and Liz Lauren apparently was available at breakfast time uh, yesterday, breakfast time on Tuesday, at odds of 66 to 1. Well, there was steady money for the horse um, during during the day. The odds did shorten quite quickly. So the bookmakers, I'm not sure they've been taken for a huge uh, amount. But the horse went off as the as a 100 to 30 shot, um, and uh, and won. And there was quite a little uh, quite a little tussle uh, between Liz Lauren, who'd shown no previous form, uh, and the runner up. And Liz Lauren came out on top. Uh, the stewards at Air. Um, they would have, regardless of the betting, they would have uh, inquired or asked for an explanation into the apparent improvement in form of uh, the six-year-old Liz Lauren. Uh, and they did. Um, and um, uh, Russell Ross, and that's his, that's his first success under rules. Uh, he said that there had been a change of tactics, although the horse had been well beaten in its previous race. He'd been pleased that it had jumped well, didn't actually jump quite so well yesterday um and um his comments have been forwarded to the british horse racing authority which is which is standard standard practice um but but clearly a horse uh, available at very big odds in the morning has ended up at considerably shorter odds and has won on a, and uh, has uh, given people plenty to chat about on a on a actually rather sunnier uh, afternoon in the west of scotland i watched racing at air yesterday it was rather it was Looked like quite a nice sunny afternoon compared to other parts of uh, of the kingdom, uh, and um, certainly on a otherwise quiet day, Liz Lauren gave plenty of people plenty of things to talk about. Well, I'm sure a lot of people were enormously saddened to read of the death of Ouija Board yesterday at the age of of 21. She was a, a remarkable filly and mare on the racecourse, ambitiously campaigned, a Group 1 winner across multiple continents, a Jewel Breeders' Cup heroine, an Oaks winner, victorious in the Far East, and some truly m- magical, memorable moments under a variety of riders, including Frankie Dottori and Kieran Fallon, most notably, and Olivier Pellier and others. Her trainer for her entire racing career was Ed Dunlop, who, who joins me now. Ed, a sad day, but I'm sure some very, very special memories for all of you to treasure. Just just explain how important she was to, to you and all of your team. Good morning, Nick. Um, more important probably than any other horse I've trained because at that stage of my career, she, she um, became, I think she was a dual Cartier winner. She was a world champion. She just did so many things that um, captured so many people's hearts. And, you know, for me, Personally, she was my first classic winner. Um, she um, then obviously 
won a premier race at Royal Ascot. Um, she won two Breeders' Cup. Look, we know what she won, but I think she's probably become most famous for the jewel in the downs, or certainly what the race I seem to see more than anything, but that great race with Alexander Goldrun. She, but very simply, she changed my life. Did you feel that your life changed in terms of, of, of your, your own profile in the sport or, or in, terms of, in terms of how you were perceived as a trainer? How, just, just tell me how. It's all results-based, as you know, um, Nick, predominantly. This filly came along and did all these great things and um, more owners came. Um, my string increased dramatically. We got new clients um, and the business started to expand. Um, and, you know, we are a lot for that. Um, it was, you know, obviously, as as you know, Nick, we had Snowfairy as well, who also stayed in training a long time and was extremely successful. But I, I possibly appreciated her more because I was very, pretty young when we had Ouija board and the story went on and on and on. And did I take it a little bit for granted when we went from one country to the next winning races? Possibly not enough, I would say. What for you were the were the moments that resonated most at the time? Hard question. Um, she, she, winning at Lone Star Park when there were only um, two horses at I think international horses at the Breeders' Cup. It was a one-day meeting then. That was enormous. Um, winning the Nassau Stakes, we were lucky enough to win the Sussex Stakes the same year with Court Masterpiece. That was incredible. Um, the Oaks, particularly with her belonging to Lord Derby, um, the Derbys winning the Oaks was huge. Um, there were so many days that were so amazing and you know she had injuries like a lot of the good horses do and she kept coming back from them she was you know she was incredible you know she always worked extremely well to a very high standard i remember she had two or three lead horses that she managed to kick out of touch over the years that simply you know at that stage she had her own her own special lead horse but she never worked badly when she was in good form and she was I'm, I'm not saying she was ever Alpinista, but she was recognised by everyone in Newmarket and everyone adored her. We all, we all adored her and um, she was very good to so many of us. And her stud career was, um, it was select and it wasn't always straightforward for, for the Stanleys and for the Derbys, but she left a really meaningful legacy in the shape of Australia and others. Jewel Oaks winner to, to, to breed a Jewel Derby winner. I don't think it happens very often. Um, yeah, no, she was incredible. Um, I think she only had four foals. The sad thing for the Derbys is she only had one filly and who sadly wasn't particularly good. So the legacy of the stud going forward is reliant on one mare. Um, but yeah, no, she was the term blue hen. She obviously was one of those and she, you know, um, she'll be remembered for a very long time. And Ed, there was something about the way she was campaigning and maybe it's just my rose-tinted specs and the, the time that I was at at, the, uh, at that moment, but it, it seemed to me that there was a real sense of fun and adventure in the way she was campaigned, even though this is a very serious multi-million pound business. I think the owners only had a, a one horse or two in training at the time. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, I'm not comparing it to Snow Fairy, but Mrs. Bettina was the same. She predominantly went to um, Japan, obviously, twice where she won. But we were very lucky with both fillies to have ambitious owners who were very happy to keen to, to go around the world with these horses. And that, and from my point of view, we it changed my life from an international perspective and we got more international clients as a result of it. And it was, as you say, great fun going to all these amazing places. And it's great fun, particularly when you win. Ed Dunlop with reflections on on Ouija board and as I said uh, Cornelius I found myself feeling a, a little sadder than is sometimes the case when you hear of the passing of a of a, a great racehorse from from years gone by just 
just she was just so ambitiously campaigned and just turned up everywhere and they didn't mind if she got beaten but she won a shed load of races and um as ed reminded me that duel with alexander goldrun will go down as one of the one of the greatest and you know d- d- going around the world to to have a go and i i think the connection with teddy darby lord darby you know the fact that his family gave its name to the most famous horse race uh, in the world and the various offshoots sort of just added to the interest that uh, Lord Derby should be, um, it should be in in his colours that the horse uh, ran. Uh, I, I felt I felt rather the same actually. But, you know, it's two thousand and four. It's a fair old time ago, and there are lots of probably people listening to this podcast for whom two thousand and four was before they really got into racing because they're so much younger than than, than I am. But it was a, a really striking time. The 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 Oaks and the Irish Oaks. Going to America, winning winning in America twice, Hong Kong as well, uh, Prince of Wales Stakes, Goodwood, uh, and, and she had, uh, and I've got a slight obsession about this. Um, uh, she had a, another really good name for people to catch on to as well. We were talking about alcohol free earlier on. Well, that's going to grab the attention, and Ouija board is going to grab the attention as well. So she was a real superstar, and. Um, Tremendous that she was involved in that that enormous rarity of um, of being the mother of Australia. So uh, a, a Derby winner, sired by um, a Derby winner and um, and mother an Oaks winner, which is a, a lovely bit of history. Uh, Lord Derby later went on to become quite a controversial figure in the town of Newmarket, but not quite as controversial figure as the current MP. <laughs> For the see what I did there, so, um, the area, <laughs> Matt, Matt oh, Hancock. You're not paid a fortune for nothing, are you? Who's been spending a, a significant portion of time away from his constituents in the jungle as part of the ITV reality show? I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Um, there are a significant number of, of councillors, including uh, those who are in, in the horse racing industry, who have uh, moved to support a motion to deselect Matt Hancock. Uh, if uh, if I'm if I'm right, Cornelius. Yeah, the, the the love affair that Newmarket had with uh, its MP uh, when he won a charity race uh, at uh, was I assume it was on the July course. It was in tw- in twenty twelve. Yeah, in the, in the in the colours of, of Rachel Hood, John John Gosling. Yeah, the, wife, the horse, horse was called, called Dick, Dick Doughty Wiley. Doughty Wiley, absolutely. And uh, yeah, the councillors in Newmarket have followed their colleagues in the nearby town of Haverhill, which is also in the West Suffolk constituency. Uh, which Matt Han- Hancock represents by basically saying that they d- they don't have they don't support him uh, any longer. Uh, racing figures uh, were on uh, either side of the argument. I think I uh, saw somebody voted against Matt Hancock. Somebody, John Berry, uh, abstained uh, in the um, in the vote, and the the leader of the council saying that um, they believe that Matt Hancock's departure to the jungle in Australia. Um, for a month or uh, quite a number of weeks anyway, away from his official duties when there are important things about traffic in that part of East Anglia, bus services in that part of East Anglia. The council in Newmarket described itself as feeling extremely let down by Matt Hancock. Uh, So it does show the fickleness of politics, the fickleness of racing, that this great love affair was on with the local MP when he won that race in 2012. Uh, now, even some big racing figures who've been doughty supporters of um, of Matt Hancock uh, are no longer quite the supporters uh, that they once were. I remember my only encounter 
with Matt Hancock was at the Cheltenham Festival. And he was not a cabinet minister, but he was a minister. And there he was at Cheltenham during March. And I said to him something like, well, you've done well to, to, to wangle uh, a, a trip to, um, uh, to the races. And he said, you know, I've been to GCHQ this morning, which is uh, in Cheltenham, the government's communications headquarters, the spy centre. And the first thing the director said when I arrived is, you are the latest. And I said, uh, said Hancock, I said, what do you mean I'm the latest? He said, it is extraordinary that people in your post managed to find that they've got a very, they need to have a very important meeting with the director of GCHQ in on a Tuesday or Wednesday in the middle of March. Uh, and so they can combine the two. Uh, so he did. He does like racing. Uh, and he's been a he's been a doughty champion for racing as well. Uh, but racing seems to be out of love with him now. All right. Well, we might just take stock of the situation in Hong Kong. We're not far away from the Hong Kong International Race Day. And you'll be well familiar that the COVID testing continues to take place in, in Hong Kong. And many jockeys of late have tested positive on a on a PCR test. But this is starting to have potentially quite serious consequences. As we found out earlier this morning, J.A. McGrath is with me again. Jim, what's what's happening here? Well, the, as you know, that they, they test every day, whether they go to have to go to work, track work or anything. Anyone connected with the jockey club has to go through a PCR test every day. And uh, it's come up positive for now we've got four jockeys on, on the sidelines, which is very worrying. I mean, you're looking at a you're looking at a pool of 22 jockeys. Uh, it's not very many. Uh, and here we are, we've got some big names knocked out. Zach Purton today. We've got Ruin Meyer, uh, who's you know, a, a lightweight jockey who gets plenty of rides. Jai McNeil, the Melbourne Cup uh, winning jockey of a couple of years ago. He's there for a three-month stint. Well, he's knocked out at the moment. And also the Frenchman Antoine uh, Hamelin. Uh, he's also uh, on the sidelines for a couple of weeks. So with the hong kong international races approaching on december the 11th and four days before that the international jockeys championship it is a very very worrying situation for the jockey club it is i mean zach Purton particularly we've spoken about him so much in recent weeks he's he's been even more in the spotlight than normal yeah he has and you know he's 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 so dominant it's incredible uh, he's ridden 51 winners already this season. There's only been 22 meetings. That doesn't maybe it doesn't sound too much uh, to, in this part of the world, but I can assure you, in the highly competitive cutthroat world of Hong Kong racing, with the limited number of races that they do have, uh, it is a very high total for this time of the year. He's the first time. He's uh, the first ever to uh, hit the 50-winner mark before December, so that puts it into perspective. Yeah, he's a he's a top-class jockey. Uh, he's now got Hugh Bowman as one of his uh, from Sydney as one of his rivals, and James McDonald will come back um, for the Hong Kong International Week as well. But uh, yeah, he's he's very much in the news all the time, Zach. And this is uh, the second time he's tested positive, which is a big worry. These guys are very careful. They're not going out on the town every day they can't their jobs are too important they're too that they value them so much uh, and uh, they know they're going to be tested every day so there's no carelessness involved here but what is worrying is that we've got four jockeys who are basically in the in the Shatin bubble they all live around that area in that in that complex and four of them have gone down with uh, with COVID. 
All right. Thank you to all my guests today. Cornelius is still with me and he's got something for this afternoon or perhaps for the weekend. I don't really mind which Cornelius, as long as said animal passes post in front. Yeah. 237 at Haydock, the Juice and Warrington introductory hurdle. I'm taking you there. It looks like a, a decent race as well with a number of horses that uh, are defending uh, recent success. And uh, I'm going to go for one of those. Number two, Nemean Lion, trained by Kerry Lee for Will Rosef. Uh, familiar colours, yellow and purple colours, big purple star on the body. Richard Patrick rides. And uh, I did some work at Hereford Racecourse. This, I think Andre Farb trained it on the flat, uh, has come to Kerry Lee and was hugely impressive when winning a not entirely hopeless race at Hereford. You know, a nice race. Sorry, I was being uh, I was being jokey there, but won a nice race at Hereford the other day. Runs in the two thirty seven at Haydock, and uh, Kerry Lee's horse is not all winning, but they're running well and quite striking. She's running one fifteen days uh, after a really striking win at Hereford. So two thirty seven Haydock number two Nemean Lion. Ah, yes, the old Andre Farb to Kerry Lee switcheroo, an angle that I've always been fond of. When, uh, from when France to Prestine. Cornelius, thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you again tomorrow. That was Wednesday, November the 30th. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.